Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So I'm not sure what uh, you did during COVID to pass the time with your family and friends and roommates or just by yourself. Many of us were by ourselves. But during the height of COVID for our family, we bought kayaks. And we were one of the few that uh, got in early on that. I know for a lot of people, they couldn't find kayaks. But uh, we had kind of exhausted all of our indoor and outdoor activities, right? And we were getting a little sick of each other, to be honest, right? You parents might know how that feels. Uh, Your kids are doing school online and they just won't leave. You know, it's like summer never ended, right? And so for us, it was like, we need something new. We need a new family activity to kind of like, like infuse some life and enjoyment back into our interaction. So we bought kayaks. And one day uh, I decided to go out by myself because I was even that was like, I just need a little bit of space, okay? <laughs> like, I'm gonna go out, so I throw it on top of my Subaru and I go to Black Hawk Creek. And like an idiot, I began by floating downstream. So then as I'm coming back upstream, paddling upstream, I get to a point in the stream where it kind of like, um, it narrowed, right? And so kind of like what you do, you know, with your hose at home, you like, like you narrow the top and it, and it gets much faster. And so I got to this point in Black Hawk Creek where I was paddling as hard as I could paddle was exactly as hard as the stream was pushing against me. I was on this like kayak treadmill, right? And so I was like working so hard, so hard, was not going anywhere. I'm like 50 yards from where I put in. I could see it right there, you know, but I can't get to it. And so after a while, I get so exhausted. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to float to the side. I grab onto a root and I couldn't even, you know, go off to the side because the banks of Black Hawk Creek are like 90 degrees. So it's not like I could just hop out and carry my kayak back, right? So I'm holding onto this root that's sticking out of the bank and I'm just kind of floating there like, what am I gonna do? Like, I am stuck. Like, I can just see the headline now. Like, amateur kayaker dies of starvation in gently flowing stream. That is, that's the headline. Like, I wouldn't even drown. They just find me in my kayak, just withered away, you know? They're like, what happened, right? So I do what most of us do when we don't know what to do. And I pull out my phone and I'm like, maybe Google has something that I'm missing. Like maybe there's some kayaking wisdom that I'm just like totally missing, right? So I Google how to kayak upstream. And you know what? You know what Google's basic response was? Just try harder. Just work harder. I was like, that is not helpful. Okay. Thanks Google for nothing. Now, obviously I made it out alive, but for a good while, way longer than I'd ever like to admit, I was legitimately stuck. I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. Have you ever been stuck? Maybe not in a kayak, okay? Most of you are probably more intelligent than me in that moment. But have you ever been stuck between like a rock and a hard place? Have you ever been in a situation where it seemed like there was no way out? Where, where the solution to your problem seems so insurmountable or so unavailable that you didn't know what to do. Well, last week, we began our series in the book of Daniel, 
And we started in Daniel chapter one. And if you need a quick refresher, what happens in Daniel chapter one is that this guy named Daniel and his friends who are Jewish teenagers, they're taken from their home country, their home city of Jerusalem, where everybody believed in the God of the Bible. And they're taken from that place and they're taken to Babylon where nobody believes in the God of the Bible. And so what Daniel is, is it's about how to live as a believer in an unbelieving world. How to live as a believer in a culture where all of its institutions, all of its norms are totally opposed to your faith. How do you do that? How do, we, how do you live as a believer in a hostile, unbelieving world? That's what the book of Daniel is all about. And what we're going to see this morning as we get into Daniel chapter 2 is we're going to see how to live faithfully as a believer when your culture pushes your back against the wall. How to faithfully live as a believer when you're stuck. That's what we're going to see in Daniel 2. So if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 2. If you have your study guide, it's on page 12. We're going to start here in verse 1. Daniel chapter two, verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So Daniel chapter one, we were introduced to this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who is this kind of, this king that we don't really know yet, who comes in and crushes the Jews in Jerusalem. But here in chapter two, we get a little more up close and personable with Nebuchadnezzar whose name, by the way, is actually, he's actually named after one of the Babylonian gods of wisdom. This will be key. And his name means Nabu, which is the Babylonian god of wisdom. Nabu, watch after my heir. So this guy named after the Babylonian god of wisdom, here he is, the greatest king of the known world, has all the wealth, all the power, all the prestige, and he still can't buy himself a good night's sleep. He was troubled. He couldn't sleep. Which right off the bat just goes to show us that worldly success is no guarantee of spiritual rest. Worldly success is no guarantee of spiritual rest. Take it from a guy who for all intents and purposes ruled the world. Worldly success doesn't guarantee spiritual rest. That those aspirations you might have of wealth, those aspirations you might have of influence, of success, of power, of even just of wanting to have like total control over your life, that even if you achieved all of that, you got all the money you wanted, all the power you wanted, all the control you wanted, that even if you got all of it, that those will not ultimately give you peace. But those will not ultimately bring you rest. It's like that quote that uh, is attributed to Jim Carrey where he says, I wish everyone could become rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so that, so that they can see that it's not the answer. Worldly success does not guarantee spiritual rest. So in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king 
Aramaic begins here. Some of you might say that a large chunk of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic. We won't get into that. And they said, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. So this is where their education was supposed to kick in, right? The king has a dream that he doesn't understand. So he calls all the sorcerers and mediums and magicians and Chaldeans to come. And this is where their education, because just like Daniel, these, all these people had graduated from Babylon's Ivy League schools where they learned the Babylonian way of interpreting dreams. And the Babylonian way of interpreting dreams was that whoever had the dream and didn't understand it would come to them and they would tell them the dream the person who had the dream, would t- the dreamer would tell them the dream, and then they would take that information, they would go back to their library, and they would consult their, uh, their dream commentaries. They had, they had these big books with these dreams and symbols and interpretations and, and ways to put things together within dreams that could help you, un- supposedly help them understand the dream. And so they would go back, consult their dream commentaries, and then bring the interpretation back to the dreamer. And so what their response is, is King... We'll give you the interpretation of your dream. Just tell us what the dream is. And we'll, we'll kind of run the process, right? Look at verse five. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts a reward and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know you can give me its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just want the interpretation of the dream. He wants them to tell him what the dream itself is. Now, we don't exactly know why he breaks with the, with the common norms of dream interpretation. We don't know why he did that. But maybe, maybe it's because, is it possible that Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing what many people experience when they reach the height of power and success? And isn't that a crippling paranoia? A crippling paranoia. You can see this if you even study history, that that this happens to many world leaders who have reached the height of power and success, and that if given enough time, they become cripplingly paranoid that that which they had worked so hard to achieve will be taken out from under them. And Nebuchadnezzar had built his kingdom around his power and might, and yet he was powerless to understand even the thoughts of his own mind. And he was so used to being in control that when it became abundantly clear that he was not in control, fear overcomes him. You see, here's what's true. That if you build your life on anything but the solid foundation of God, you will be haunted by fear and anxiety. If you build your life on any foundation except God, you will eventually become haunted by fear and anxiety. Here's how this works. That if you build your life on money, you will become 
fearful and anxious about what's happening in the markets because it'll threaten to take away everything you work to achieve. If you build your life on your looks, you'll be fearful and anxious about what you see happening in the mirror. No matter how hard you work out, you cannot, you cannot reverse time. That if you build your life on popularity, you'll become fearful and anxious about what's happening in the polls. Now, maybe you won't run for office and have like official polls, but like the social polls, right? Like, am I in or am I out? Am I accepted or am I rejected? Am I included or am I I excluded? Where am I at in my social hierarchy? If you build your life on popularity, you will constantly be fearful and anxious about what other people perceive you to be, about how other people see you. Whatever it is that you build your life on, if it isn't God, you'll become anxious and fearful about whatever threatens to knock it down. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. In the height of his reign thus far, he controls everything, but he can't control his sleep. And he has a dream that troubles his soul. He doesn't know what the dream means. If he did, he wouldn't be asking for the interpretation. He doesn't know what it means, but it seems to be clear that he at least understands enough to know that it doesn't seem to be good for him. So he asked them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And in the face of this like impossible request, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So he flies into a rage. Now, why does he fly into a rage? It says it, because of this. Because of what? It's because in this moment of trouble and fear and anxiety, Nebuchadnezzar comes face to face with what is true of every human who has ever lived, which is that you are not God. No matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy, no matter how influential, no matter how much you have done or no matter how much you will do, the reality is that Nebuchadnezzar and all of us should come face to face with this morning is that at the end of the day, we are human. That we are not God. That though he may be great, he is not God. That though you may be great, you are not God. That, you, that though you may aspire to greatness, you will never become God. How many of us, when we are faced with troubling circumstances, we panic and we freak out, not not simply because of the circumstance itself, but because it is an opportunity once again for us to be faced with the fact that we are not ultimately in control. For us to have to face the fact that we are not ultimately in charge. And that's not to downplay the direness of the situation you may be going through right now. Your situation may be incredibly difficult. It may be incredibly frustrating. But isn't it true that if you're honest with yourself, 
that many times our frustration is amplified because it forces us to see once again that we are not God. Frederick Nietzsche said this really well when he said, if there is a God, how can I bear not be that God? Many of us, the root of our fear and anxiety in life, the root of it lies right here. It's the echo of the garden, isn't it? That we want so badly not to just be created, but we want to be like the creator. That we can't help deep down within us that we're not content to just be human, but we want to be like God. And you see, if you build your life on the foundation of control, then you'll fear anything that reminds you that you are not God. So he flies into a rage. Verse 13, the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute him. Nebuchadnezzar isn't at peace with God, he isn't at peace with himself, and therefore he isn't at peace with the world. Look at verse 14. Then Daniel responded with fear and aggression. That's not what that says. What does it say? Daniel responded with panic and rage. Doesn't say that either. Check this out. Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Tact and discretion. You see, even in the face of death itself, Daniel doesn't respond with defensiveness, but he, res- he responds with discernment. This is, this is kind of what we saw last week, right? Where there's multiple ways that we can respond to adversity in our life. But Daniel doesn't respond by giving up. So he doesn't assimilate, right? He doesn't just say, well, I guess that's it. I'll just give up. He doesn't assimilate. He doesn't respond by running away by trying to be absent from the situation, right? Because how could he even do that anyway? They already found him. He doesn't respond by giving up. He doesn't respond by, get, by running away. And he doesn't respond by fighting. He doesn't get aggressive. But instead, as the faithful presence that he is, he responds with tact and discretion. Now, why can he do this? It's because unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel has built his life on the only foundation that will never crumble. And so even in the face of death itself, Daniel doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't lose his mind. But he's able to respond with tact and discretion. Verse 15. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Fair question. Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. So he buys them some time. He runs home, and look at what he does. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. 
urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. You see, Daniel didn't lean on his own wisdom. He didn't go lock himself in a room with a whiteboard and start just like thinking really hard. He didn't turn to his education and go lock himself in the library and start consulting the dream commentaries, just thinking, well, maybe I can make something up. I'm not exactly sure. And notice he doesn't even ultimately run to his friends. Yes, he runs home and talks to his three friends, but notice that he doesn't ask his friends their thoughts on the situation. But instead, he urges them to join him in asking the God of heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. You see, where you first turn in times of trouble reveals who or what you believe has the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate resources to provide for your needs. Where you first turn in times of trouble reveals what you ultimately think about God. It reveals what you ultimately believe has the ultimate power and resources to solve your problem. Where, where do you first turn in times of trouble? What is your first response? What's the first phone call that you make? Where's the first place that you go? Is prayer your last resort? Or is it your first resort? Your first response in crisis will always reveal what you ultimately believe about God. You see, for many of us, if you're anything like me, when I am confronted by trouble, the first thing that I often say is, what in the world am I going to do? And yet what Daniel shows us is that a better response in times of trouble is to ask, what in the world is God going to do? And to take our trouble and our crises and our requests to the Lord and to invite others to join us in that prayer process. Verse 19. So he runs home. Verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Now why, why in the world are verses 20 through 23 here. Why? I mean, think about this. So Daniel asked the king for more time, and it was, clearly, uh, it was clearly given to him. And so Daniel is in a time crunch. Like the shot clock is counting down, right? 
And you would think that when given the answer that Daniel, knowing, seeing, the, seeing that the game is almost over, would run to the king with the answer, right? Like why are verses 20 through 23 even here? You don't even need them there for it to make sense. Like if you just go verse 19, okay. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night and then jump to verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, who whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. It makes sense. It still makes sense. So why? Why are verses 20 through 23 included? Why does Daniel even do this? It's because verses 20 through 23 are the thematic center of the whole story. We haven't, we'll get to the crazy dream here. Like, we get some insight into what the dream is and the interpretation, all that stuff. Like, that's crazy. But the thematic center of Daniel chapter 2 is verses 20 through 23. That if chapter 1, that if the point of chapter 1 was that true strength doesn't come from the world but comes from God, then the point of chapter 2 is that true wisdom doesn't come from the world but comes from God. True strength doesn't come from the world. True wisdom doesn't come from the world. But they come from God and God alone. So how do you live as a faithful presence when you're stuck? How do you live as a faithful presence in a hostile culture when you don't know what to do? Look to God for wisdom. Now, you might ask, how do I look to God for wisdom? The reality is, I think that for many of us, we really want wisdom in the things that are mysterious, while at the same time can end up neglecting wisdom in the things that are obvious. Here's what I mean. A commentator uh, Ian Duguid was helpful on this. His commentary is actually back in the Resource Center if you want to see where I'm stealing this from. So what, what he talks about in this is um, object of wisdom and subject of wisdom. And here's what he means. Is that we have objective wisdom in the word of God, in his revealed word to us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful and is profitable so that we can live according to his commands, so that we can live faithfully, right? He has given us his word. And so God has given us objective wisdom in his word to tell us who God is, to tell us who we are, to tell us what he is like, what we should believe about him, and to tell us how we should please him. Like he has told us that in his word. And then what wisdom is, is it's being able to apply what we see in the word of God into the nuances of life. What wisdom is, is being able to apply the principles of the word of God into all of the situations where there isn't a particular chapter and verse for your situation, for your life, for your family, for your parenting, for your job. And what can easily happen is that many of us, we will affirm the objective word of God. We would say, yes, God's word is true and trustworthy, but then when we get to a point in our life where there isn't a specific chapter and verse, we revert back to trusting into our, in, in our own wisdom. We go, well, there's not a chapter and verse about it, so what do I think I should do? 
Or what do my friends think? Or what does like common sense say? Like some of us can do that. Some of you might like so equate your own feelings with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Like my feelings equal the Holy Spirit. That's really dangerous by the way. But like we can so equate that that as long as it just kind of feels right, then that's what you'll do. Even if it stands in direct contrast to the objective word of God. But what we have here in Daniel chapter two is that when Daniel is faced with a crisis, Daniel both knows the object of word of, the object of, word of God and he seeks subjective wisdom. And the way that he balances these two things is through prayer. You see, you can never be a person of wisdom if you are not a person of prayer. Because without prayer, without seeking and depending on the Lord in prayer, we will not have the wisdom to know how to take God's objective wisdom of his word and apply it into the million different situations where there isn't a specific chapter and verse. There wasn't a specific verse in the Torah for how to navigate dream interpretations. He didn't have one. And so in the absence of objective wisdom, Daniel turns to the Lord in prayer to give him direction in the nuances of life. So Daniel prays to the Lord. Daniel and his friends pray to the Lord for wisdom. The Lord gives it to them, and then he goes to the king. Verse 26. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. Check this out. But there is a God in heaven. Are you in a situation right now where you're confused? There is a God in heaven in heaven? Are you frustrated? Are you scared? Does it seem like no one knows the answer to your problem? Does it seem like no answer is anywhere to be found? There is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. And here's the, here's the dream. Your dream and visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its stomach and thighs were bronze. 
Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away. Not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So huge statue, different materials, random rock. What in the world does this mean? Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Here's what it means. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed." And his people will not be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. So you go, what in the world? That was supposed to be the interpretation. I still don't understand it. Okay. So huge statue, bunch of different materials. Now we could spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out like, like these materials represent kingdoms and these kingdoms are of greater or lesser degrees of power and they will fall in succession. We could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the different parts of the statue represent. What we know for sure is that the head of the statue is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon because he says it there in verse 38. Now some people think that these other materials are like the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. Some think that they represent the Medes, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. Some people think that this is just kind of like a general reference to kingdoms over a progression of time. And then other people try to equate like modern kingdoms, modern nations and governments, and try to say, well, this, you know, this is this modern nation, and this is this modern nation, and they're going to do all these things, all that stuff. Here's, here's the thing, though. Don't get so caught up in trying to identify the kingdoms that will fall that you totally miss the kingdom that will rise. So here, here, for, for you in connection groups, okay, you should spend maybe 30 seconds talking about, you know, what, what are these other kingdoms, right? Because the point is not trying to identify the kingdoms that will fall. The point is focus on the kingdom that will rise. You see, this kingdom is the stone that broke off without a hand touching it, verse 34. And the stone that broke off without a, without a hand touching it that struck the statue goes from being a small stone to growing into a huge mountain. And what is this stone? 
What is this kingdom that will crush all the other kingdoms? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God whose foundation is Jesus Christ. We know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected, but that has become the cornerstone. That the kingdom of God is the kingdom that will start out small, but will one day fill the whole earth and will envelop and crush every other kingdom that stands in its path. So what does this crazy dream that Nebuchadnezzar had centuries ago have to do with us today? Oh, it has a whole lot. It has a whole lot to do with us today. And here's what, it, here's what it means. It means that the great hope for you as a Christian today is neither a great America built on political saviors nor a utopian future built by social reform and human effort. Your great hope as a Christian today is not a great America And your great hope as a Christian today is not a future utopia because what Nebuchadnezzar's dream should tell us today is that like these nations, America will one day fall. It will. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because America, like every other kingdom, will one day fall, except the kingdom of God. And so Christian, don't put your hope in America or its politics. Don't put your ultimate hope in politics. Because one day they too will fall. And don't put your hope in humanity's ability to create heaven on earth. Because the kingdom of God, check this out, the only kingdom that will endure is the kingdom that comes without a hand touching it. If you have a hand in building the kingdom, that kingdom will fall. Because the kingdom that will endure will come without a hand touching it. So if you touch it, you ruined it. It'll pass away. Because we neither have the strength nor the power to bring about heaven on earth. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who will one day bring all rulers, all powers, all nations, all injustice, all evil. He will one day bring those to an end and will establish for himself a kingdom that will never be destroyed. You see, God gave Daniel wisdom and in doing so, He spared Daniel and his friends from death and destruction. But here's what's so cool, is that Daniel and his friends weren't the only ones saved from death by God's wisdom. Here's how. It's because many years later, God would once again send his wisdom to intervene for his people And But this wisdom would not be in a dream. This wisdom would not come in a vision, but this wisdom would come in a person. That Jesus Christ, the wisdom and power of God, would come to the earth to save us from eternal death and bring us into a kingdom 
that will never pass away, that will never be destroyed, that will never end. And so Christian this morning, stop trusting in your knowledge and wisdom because God's wisdom is greater than human wisdom. Stop trusting in politics and policies for your security because God's kingdom is greater than any human kingdom. And so in your crisis, look to Christ. In your peril, turn to God in prayer. In your weakness, turn to God for wisdom. And in your insecurity, stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God and the cornerstone of the only kingdom that will never pass away. Stand on Christ and look to him for your wisdom, church. Let's pray. O oh God, be thou our wisdom and thou our true word. Remind us by your spirit that you are always with us. And would you help us in times of crisis? Would you help us in times of struggle? Would you help us when our, back are, when our backs are against the wall, when we don't know what to do, to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you? Father, would we be a wise people because we are a praying people? Would we be a joyful people because we are not standing on the kingdoms of this earth, but because we are citizens of a kingdom that will never end? Oh Lord, help us to not forget these truths in times of trouble. We thank you for your everlasting, never-ending, unfailing, always and forever love towards us in Christ. Would you give us the strength to stand firm? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.